Welcome to the Chiropractic United podcast series for June 22nd, 2011. This podcast brought to you by CBP Seminars. For more information, go to idealspine.com. And also brought to you by Elite Coaching. For more information on what Dr. Fred can bring to your office, go to EliteCoachingLLC.com. And finally, by my company, PostureCo.com. If you're interested in our Posture Screen mobile app on the iPad or iPod Touch or even the iPhone, browse to PostureCo.com. While there, check out our x-ray digitizing software and see the power that that x-ray software can bring to your practice, building relations with other healthcare providers, documenting injuries, and better marketing to your existing patients. For more information, PostureCo.com. Now, let's get started. Okay, welcome to June 22nd, uh, what is actually Wednesday night, to the Kyrie United podcast, and it's a great pleasure to be here with Dr. Deed Harrison, a CBP, Dr. Joe Farantelli of Postureco, and myself, Dr. Fred Domenico of Elite Coaching, and we have another episode of exciting things to share with you in philosophy, purpose, and tonight we're talking about and continuing a podcast from a few week, weeks ago of the six categories of subluxations. Now, as purpose-driven chiropractors and with the principle and application of chiropractic to really bring optimal spine, optimal health to people, this is really the foundation of everything that we do, not only in our office every day, but really this is the history of chiropractic. This proves everything that you're doing in your practice. So... Uh, tonight we have Dr. Deed is is bringing us another topic with subluxation categories, and we're going to talk about snap through buckling. And uh, just one comment, real quick, Deed. You know this is what's amazing because when you're looking at X-rays and you're communicating in a report of findings, people think that those curve changes happen over a long time, and it doesn't. What you're going to talk about tonight, Deed? These changes can happen within seconds or very rapidly with a trauma. So I think what you're going to learn tonight and what Deed's going to bring to you is a whole new perspective on not only what you're looking at with x-rays, but how you communicate to your patients and show the urgency of subluxation. So on that note, take it away. Yeah, I mean, the the frustrating thing for me has always been these these theories that get perpetuated inside all professions, including chiropractic, on you know, di- different uh, displacements and how they come about. For example, in chiropractic, uh, for ex- with the sagittal plane curves, specifically reversal or S-curves of the cervical curve, people have claimed that that was due to muscle spasm for decades. And it was radiologists, MDs, and, and chiropractors that perpetuated that. And there was actually no evidence that muscle spasms can create the type of abnormal neck curves that you see routinely in patient populations. And then really that has been refuted quite some time ago that muscle spasms will alter the cervical curve. And if you think about it, it's really the the volume of neck muscles is in the posterior aspect of the spine. So it's the erector spinae muscles. And those muscles, their lever arms create extension, compression, and posterior shear. They don't, they don't create flexion. So 
if a neck is going to be in spasm, chances are that you've got the erector spinae muscles that have the greatest volume, the greatest density, and the longest lever arms. They're going to be contracted. They should create hyperlordosis, not kyphosis and S-curves, etc. So that theory is really pretty much not true in the majority of cases that you see. It, specifically, when you look at whiplash-injured subjects, they come in with abnormal uh, reverse neck curves of different types, either an S-curve in the upper, an S-curve in the middle, S-curve in the lower, or complete kyphosis. And th these people have been on muscle relaxants, or they're on pain medication, or they've done massage therapy, or they've done spinal manipulation. Yet when you take an x-ray, they still have an abnormal curve. So it can't be due to muscle spasm because muscle relaxants, massage therapy, and spinal manipulative therapy are supposed to inhibit muscle contraction and muscle spasm. Or even better, Deed, how about when you have a cadaver and they put them on a, on a sled and slam them into the wall simulating whiplash, they get buckled in abnormal neck curves, and obviously, uh, yeah, they don't have any spasm. Right. They don't have any muscles, so <laughs> how can they be spasmed? So that theory is really untrue in the majority of cases we see. The other theory is this new theory coming from the neurological side of chiropractic saying that it's alteration in, in brain activity of one part of the hemisphere and one part of the brain that, that causes the, the kyphosis to develop over time and on and on. I just heard one of these on a chiropractic chat room site, and, and the guy went on and on about this neurological theory but yet presented no data whatsoever in support of his personal opinion, other than just assumed that everybody agreed with the fact that it was fact. Well, I'm here to tell you that it, it's not anything to do with altered brain activity causing a, a cervical kyphosis. Now, maybe causing abnormal posture deterioration, like in a Parkinson's case, etc. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what really causes cervical kyphosis, true S curves, double S curves, etc. And really, this is an engineering model of spine displacement, a.k.a. the biomechanical component of vertebral subluxation. This is our Category 3 subluxation, if the listener was listening in a few weeks ago when we went through the six categories. So this particular topic is called sagittal plane buckling or snap-through. My dad and I in college wrote about this as early as 1998 in the peer-reviewed literature uh, in JMPT. We wrote a paper called uh, Three-Dimensional Spinal Coupling Mechanics, uh, Part 2, Implications for Chiropractic Theories and Practice, JMPT 1998, uh, Volume 21, page 177. Uh, of course, my dad wrote about this in his early textbooks in the 1980s and early 90s, but it wasn't until this paper in 98 that uh, we, we did it in the peer-reviewed literature. So really, what we got to realize is what is buckling? Well, from my mechanical engineering textbook that I got when I was a freshman at the University of Utah, uh, buckling, this is a, a book by Biren Johnston, uh, buckling is a term that indicates concentrated mechanical stress to a certain portion of the material, a.k.a. the spine, resulting from abnormal alignment that brings with it a risk of degradation of materials. So in this, in this definition, they're talking about the alignment being abnormal, causing stress concentrations. So they're calling it a buckling alignment. 
However, what you got to realize is there's buckling that causes this what we call buckling type of alignment. So it says here the alignment which causes the buckling is called the buckling type of an, of a, alignment. And buckling alignment can be a retrolisthesis, an S curve, a kyphosis, etc. And buckling alignment exists when the slope of the curve changes directions. Okay? So when the slope of the cervical curve changes direction, that's the buckling alignment. Well, it gets bigger than that. There's a, a first level that you have to understand. The first level is, well, what is the cause of the buckling alignment? Well, the cause of the buckling alignment is loads. And loads that exceed the tolerance of the column will cause buckling alignment. And they call that load, they call it snap through buckling loads or snap through as a term in general that just describes the deflection of the cervical curve in the median sagittal plane across the coronal plane. So what happens is you apply a load to the column and at first the column resists that load. You haven't overcome the equilibrium or the stability of that column. But once the load either A, increases in magnitude or B, increases in its acceleration, you, you get an inability of the column to sustain its original position under this load, and the column will deflect across the coronal plane in the median sagittal plane. And the deflection is flexion and extension or anterior and posterior shear. And this causes what we call the buckling alignment or the buckling injury. Most of the time, buckling is a rapidly applied load. For example, a, a, a whiplash injury is a type of inertial loading, and that's rapidly applied. And the buckling alignment occurs two to three times faster than the muscles can react. Another type of buckling that occurs non-whiplash or non-inertial is compression-induced buckling. And like a compression event would be diving into the pool head first or falling off the monkey bars head first or spear tackling head first in football or rugby and you, you name it. You can picture the compression type of loading. What happens is normally when you apply load to the cervical column, the load acts exactly tangent to the curve and exactly perpendicular to the finite rotation center or perpendicular to the plane of the disc, if you will. When loads act in that manner, then the muscles can support that and the column can support it. But when you apply these loads rapidly, like in, in a whiplash or a, a trauma fall with compression, the loads are not actively passing perpendicular to the finite rotation center. You get a shift in, in the way the load acts on the, the finite rotation center, and then you get complex loading that overcomes the moment of inertia of the, of the column. And if I'm speaking in a foreign language to some of you out there listening, so be it. It's called mechanics of material, and you, you just have to kind of deal with the terminology. So normally the, the column's supposed to be stable under the load, but when you apply these complex loads or rapidly applied loads, it, it, it doesn't act like it's supposed to, and you get buckling. 
And there's been a number of experiments on the cervical spine and lumbar spine that have shown this. So l let me just define a few terms uh, as we go along. And I'll, I'll give you the generic definition of buckling now that I've, I've kind of given the concept. Uh, the generic bu buckling term is the structure's equilibrium state undergoes a shift or a jump in energy states. The structure snaps across the, the coronal plane or in the sagittal plane, and you get snapped through buckling. It occurs once the critical load of the column has been met or exceeded. The critical load is defined as the load at which the structure can no longer remain in its original position, and it displaces into an abnormal equilibrium configuration. And the critical load is something that, number one, in the spine is determined by the unique properties of the individual, like, for example, me, I'm pretty damn strong. I've got dense connective tissues because I work out and great genetics, right, guys? That's it, and you're tall. You're really tall, too, Dean. Well, see, that's the other part of this. So density of the tissue plays a role in the critical load, but so does the, the height of the column. So the height of the column is actually inversely proportional to the critical load. So shorter columns are more stable. They have higher critical loads than taller columns. So tall people, unfortunately, in a buckling uh, model would be more susceptible to buckling. So that, would, that, would, that would explain why my brother, the short power lifter, is a world champion in squatting, and uh, I always buckled under the same amount of weight. Yeah, that that's exactly right. So a, a short, dense, thick person, and I mean muscular and stature-wise, not not brain-wise, uh, <laughs> that that person is more stable under load. So the the power lifters, like you said, Joe are on average shorter and just stout and dense. You know, they're built like uh, people call them fire hydrants or tanks. So you wouldn't see a basketball player powerlifting. You know, it just it doesn't work that way. So the other thing that determines the critical load is how fast that load is applied. So if, if you apply a, a rapid acceleration load, then the critical load is going to be lower than if you applied a, a slow kind of static or quasi-static type load. Hey, I have a question, Dee. Yep. So based on that, if you have a short person and a tall person with an equally subluxated, say a similar subluxation pattern, just with the forces of gravity, would a taller person collapse faster? Yeah, the taller person is going to be more susceptible with the same displacement than a shorter person for uh, injuries, disc injuries, ligament injuries, muscle injuries, and column deformity, yes. That's pretty important in an ROF, probably. Yeah, it, it would be important. However, there, there's certain features in the spine that try to accommodate that in some people, like some taller people can, can be built pretty thick and their, their bone structure can be a, a little bit denser, etc. But all things being equal, the taller column buckles faster and, and further under the same can, can, uh, kind of load constraints. Okay, so then the other thing that influences the critical load is just what you, you kind of alluded to, Fred, is, is the posture. Certain postures are more resilient and resistant to buckling, and those postures are neutral postures. Anybody that has forward and backwards displacement of the skull or the rib cage 
they're going to have a lower critical load under buckling than somebody that had a neutral alignment. Okay, so there, there's all these things that affect the critical load, and I've tried to summarize those. And they're, you know, properties unique to the person in some cases. In other cases, they're properties that the person could have avoided, like abnormal posture. Okay, so then the the last thing that would affect the critical load would be kind of the the area that the load is applied. Like you could apply the load a little more frontal and not pure compression, and then you'll get a flexion component to the load and a shear component to the load instead of a true compression component, and then that, that critical load will be lower for, for, uh, in a, than in a person that the load was applied at what we call the uh, uh, finite rotation center or directly along the axis of the spine. Okay, so then there's another term called the critical state, the critical state is defined as the point at which the cervical spine or lumbar spine displaces under the critical load. So when you reach the critical load, we hit the critical state and the spine displaces. And again, these buckling shapes occur two to three times faster than the muscles can fully react, and they have nothing to do with brain activity and, and such like this that some of these neurological chiropractors would discuss. Okay. So, in general terms, there's two types of buckling that we've alluded to. There's direct impact or compression loading, and then there's inertial loading or acceleration, deceleration events. Okay, and, and they are different in what they do, but they do have similar responses. Both of these categories of buckling are influenced by similar variables. And I'll summar, summarize the variables again because I know I kind of threw out a lot of terms. The variables are uh, loading rate, the velocity and acceleration of the impact, uh, the angle of the impact, the point on the skull or the spine that we impact, the posture or position of the spine at impact, the type of surface that the spine may or may not strike, like is it a rigid surface or is it foam, and then... Uh, the mass and material properties of the spine itself. So th these are the variables and these are the two type of bucklings. And you'll be surprised at some of these buckling studies, what happens. So before I throw out some of the citations, because the listeners out there expect citations, I'll, I'll let's take a, a quick breath here and I'll let uh, you and uh, or Dr. Joe and Dr. Fred chime in here for the listeners. Well, you know, the, the one thing that, that this is really important because, you know, a lot of things that you just threw out are, they're, they're pretty heavy, but we all deal with this. I mean, everybody who's in practice deals with these traumatic events that alter the spine, regardless if they're going to court for whiplash trauma or not. And we're so misled, um, you know, on what's changing the curves. And, and it stands to reason I... I I realize how sheltered I've been, you know, since we've been with our group of doctors that, you know, we've taught for so long. When I was at a, a, a big trade show this past weekend at the Florida Chiropractic Associations, I was showing our x-ray software. And um, a, a doctor after doctor would say, wow, I bet that, that person's neck hurts. You know, they must be in a lot of pain, that muscle spasm, you know, but it wouldn't be that bad if they weren't in spasm. And it was a, a completely kyphotic neck with no anterior head translation. You know, I just happen to use it because it's a, it's a gross neck, you know, and it's, you know, a nice DICOM digital image. 
And, you know, it led into, I, I gave many seminars on how that's not the case and how they, you know, because they're challenged in court. And the doctors just don't know. They've, they, they've just accepted that muscle spasm caused these changes. You know, so I think it's really important that we know this. And then also, Deed, isn't it true that a lot of those small muscles, uh, like the multifidi and all, aren't they just mostly proprioceptive? Well, they're, they're mostly proprioceptive, but they also have a stabilization role. So they contribute to the overall stability of the spine at multi-segmental levels and to some extent the segmental level. But when you look at the, the neuroanatomy, they're not wired segmentally. So you, you, can't, you don't have a neural connection, for example, to contract the, the right rotatory at C4, C5. Yeah. It's, a, it's a multi-segmental muscle in terms of its neurology even though it has segmental influences. So they're proprioceptive and they're stabilizers. They don't have the mass and the lever arms to truly create movement. You know, and one way I think people could really, I mean, and you know what's interesting too, if any of the doctors that have ever used a fluoroscope or DMX, if you stand in front of one of those, tighten your neck as hard as you can and try and alter the neck curve. The only way you're going to alter the neck curve is if you change your posture. You know, and by changing your posture, if it happens quickly, like you're saying, having inertial loads such as a, a whiplash trauma, uh, you know, that's going to happen so quickly that the muscles can't contract. You're going to get a change in that curve. But anybody who sits in front of a, a DMX and moves their neck, they know you have to change the posture. And it's not just one group of muscles that can actually do it. You have to move the whole global uh, part. And I'm sure you're going to go into that a little bit, too. I may. Yeah, we'll see how much time we have here. Dr. Fred? Well, I think what you're talking about, Dean, is all these um, different types of buckling and the forces that go through the spine and the injuries that they cause. You know, and we partner together because you teach this stuff, and, and as chiropractors, we need to know the mechanics of the spine. And there's a lot of people out there that say they're subluxation-based. I'm not dogging on them because the principle is truth. But when you're looking at an X-ray and you understand the mechanics... And you're, and like I said before, people think that they've progressed to that problem over time. And sometimes it's not time. Sometimes it's very rapid. And it, it is a force that literally overcomes the resistance to that force. And then you hit that critical moment where the spine collapses. And it's a rapid collapse. And so when you're looking at an x-ray, especially with a history of trauma... You know, that was almost an instantaneous subluxation pattern. Now you have soft tissue injury. It's a complicated condition. That becomes an urgent situation because the rate at which that, that patient is going to degenerate becomes highly accelerated. And there's a difference between progression and urgency. And, and, and those type of injuries, as you know, cause very rapid degeneration of their health. And if a patient doesn't understand that, you know, they're going to think they have time or maybe I'll do it next week or, gee, I'm starting to feel better after a couple adjustments when really that structure is really very weak and the rate at which their spine is going to collapse and the stress on their nervous system leading to degeneration of their body becomes very rapid at that point. And people need to understand what they're dealing with and actually who is standing in front of them. And we have a responsibility to tell the truth to that patient so they can really make 
a truly informed decision about where they're going to take their life. Because injuries like what you're talking about, Deed, and Joe, you know this too, are will literally affect the lifespan and quality of life of that person. And that person needs to know that. And even with the principle of chiropractic, you know, there's so many people talking about the principle, and, you know, and I get that and we need to, but understand that person's condition that's standing in front of you because their life has suddenly changed. And it's good. They're, they're heading for a 100-foot cliff really fast, and they don't even know it. And the doctors need to know it and be able to communicate that. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Those are good points. So <clears throat> that's what uh, Joe and Fred, you're here for. You know, I can be a little sometimes uh, intellectual on these topics, and it's good to go back and ground for the chiropractor out there. So let me throw out a couple studies and, and uh, go through some information and, and try to kind of add some clarity to this particular topic to, so you can see the extent of literature that has been done on it. There was a study done by Maiman, M-A-I-M-A-N, et al., in the Journal of Neurosurgery in 2002, volume 97, number 1, page 57. They took uh, cadaver whole skulls and cervical spines down to T1, and they uh, basically they applied loads to them to see what type of injuries that they could occur or create in the cervical column. And what they did is they took some of the cadavers, they put them in the neutral position when they applied the load, so no forward head translation and a, a, a slight lordosis. And then they put some of the cadavers in anterior head translation and posterior head translation. And what they showed was, based on the position of the, the spine and the skull at, at starting position under the load, they could create different types of injuries, which makes sense, but people kind of overlook at it, overlook that. The common sense thing is overlooked. So, for example, when head flexion was maintained at approximately 15 degrees and the head was in slight anterior head translation, what they found was wedge fractures in, in the anterior column and flexion-type ligamentous injuries occurred. They, they then uh, got burst fractures and linear vertebral body fractures for neutral cervical spine postures, and then they got facet fractures and ALL tears and anterior disc tears for negative head translation postures. And really the more severe injuries occurred with the head forward and with the head backwards. The, the less severe injuries occurred with the head in the neutral position and the spine was more stable. So that's one uh, experiment on, on buckling. Another experiment was done by Nightingale and colleagues in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, 1996, the American uh, edition. And this was followed up in, in 1999 and in uh, 1996 in, in the year 2000 in the Journal of Biomechanics by the same group. So they've done several papers on this. And what they did was they looked at what's called buckling modes. And buckling modes are how many curve or how many inflection points do you get? So, for example, the buckled mode indicates increased complexity of the deformity. If you just look at the shape, if, if we define the, the neutral lordosis as zero or the neutral buckling shape, then an S-curve would be one change in direction. We'd call that the first-order buckling mode. 
And then if I had a flexion with an extension and a flexion, so for example, C5 is flexed, C4 is extended, and C3 is flexed, that's two curve changes that would be the second ordered buckled mode, etc. And we could go up to third ordered buckling and fourth order buckling. And what this particular set of experiments by uh, Nightingale et al. showed was that first order buckling, the S curves, can be produced under static and quasi static compression loads. But the second order and higher buckling modes, they really only occur during impact or dynamic inertial loading. And the second order and higher buckling modes are associated with higher potential en energies and more significant injuries to different components of the column. You'll have multiple injuries, like in a, in a second-order buckling, you can have part of the spine damaged in the front and part of the spine damaged in the back. It, it just depends on where the flexion and extension is occurring. So the, the Nightingale experiments are, are quite interesting, and they're more of a dynamic loading type of model where they videotape the spine with uh, high-frequency footage where I can see many frames per second. I can see exactly what happens to the spine under the load. Uh, my dad called these buckling modes, it, instead of buckling modes, he called them harmonics in his early books. And so some of the old-time chiropractors out there might uh, kind of recognize what we're talking about. My dad called them first harmonic, second harmonic, and third harmonic. And he did that based on a course that he took in uh, his master's degree called string theory. And what he was doing is looking at the vibration of a string and they would undergo, you know, like a, a single or a double or a triple sine wave. And so he, he looked at the, the cervical curve and he said, well, that's like a harmonic and string theory. And it wasn't till later in his education that he actually took uh, the mechanics of the material courses where when he took engineering and got a master's degree in mechanical engineering that he said, oh, that's more appropriately described as, uh, as uh, buckling and buckled modes. And of course, I told him that as early as the 1990s, but he didn't want to listen to me. Hmm. So, nice. yeah, that's fun, isn't it? But uh, anyway, the, the Nightingale papers are, are quite nice. Now, some of the whiplash literature, it alludes to buckling, but it's not as specific as the true buckling experiments. Like the, the whiplash studies all show an S-curve occurring during the initial phase of retraction and when the skull is translating backwards when the automobile in front is first struck from an automobile behind, you see that the person undergoes a slight retraction of their skull and then at the same time their, their head and neck will be under a mild compression load uh, just simply because the, the uh, torso uh, kyphosis is straightening out and the whole body is sliding up the seat. So the skull kind of gets, uh, or the cervical curve gets slightly compressed between the skull and the uh, rising rib cage. And so you'll get an S curve or a first order buckling and whiplash. Now, nobody to my knowledge has really described second order buckling in whiplash injuries, but you got to realize that the experiments that they've done, they're using. Uh, cadavers and live subjects, and they probably just haven't applied the the, uh, the uh, high enough acceleration load to to achieve a second order buckling. And it's probably coming if you if you watch the literature. You mark my words, you'll see 
experiments coming out in the future, probably showing second and third order buckling under whiplash type loads, and that's in the inertial load. But for now, the the second order and higher buckling have really uh, been comp uh, produced under compression type loading. So again, the person that dives into a pool or falls off the monkey bars or whatever that compression load is. Now, just to give you an idea of, of uh, the studies in the in the literature that have shown what buckling alignment does, people want to argue and say that oh, it's a number one, it's a normal variant. Uh, number two, it's a muscle spasm. We've already kind of described and just discussed that that's not true. And what, what we find out is that there has been some nice engineering studies that have looked at long-term consequences of having an abnormal alignment in your cervical curve. And it's called, you know, the buckling alignment. So a study was done in 1997 by Matsunaga et al. in spine. It was volume 22, page 765 through 770, or 771. And what they did is they looked at buckling alignment from a calculus point of view. They, they looked at the curves, and they just passed a polynomial function through the anterior body, bodies of the cervical uh, spine. And so they, they did what's called a second or third order polynomial function. And what they did was... They looked at the slope of the curve as the first derivative, and then they looked at the bending moment of the curve as the second derivative along different points of, of the curve. And what they found out was right where the buckling alignment occurs, where the slope of the curve changes directions, that's either the retrolisthesis or the flexion or the extension component, right where that abnormal alignment occurs, you get an altered slope and an altered bending moment. That's where the degeneration occurred at long-term follow-up. So they showed that buckling alignment causes and predicts where degenerative joint disease is going to occur. Now, we know that as Wolf's Law and that the alignment applies abnormal loads to it. But this, this is a, a slightly different twist to that, showing that from an engineering analysis, you can predict and prove that that's the buckling alignment. That's where the stress concentrations are going to be abnormal. And when you follow people over time, that's where the degeneration occurs. And they, they def definitively, definitively showed that in 1997. The same group did experiments in the lumbar spine, and they did follow-ups later in the cervical spine. I won't go through that in this particular uh, uh, presentation on Cairo United. So buckling alignment, to summarize, it's an S-curve. It's a double S-curve. It's a retrolisthesis. It's an antrolisthesis. It's not caused by muscle spasm. It's not a positional variable. It's caused by abnormal loads being applied to the spine where your spine cannot sustained its new sustained its neutral position under those loads and then you get an abnormal shift in the the alignment of the the column and it shifts its equilibrium so it's it's called buckling so we we took this we wrote all this up in a couple different papers one of them was jmpt 1998 like i started with and one of them was the ica uh, uh, pccrp x-ray guidelines in 2005 where we presented uh, this information as a model of subluxation for the chiropractic profession. And I, I think uh, just by me 
briefly going through this information here, you can see that there's a lot of support in the engineering, in the spine sciences literature that, that support this particular model of subluxation, that it, it is truly a recognizable spine displacement where you can show that it occurred due to an injury load and you can show that there's consequences. Okay, so the last article I want to go through on this topic, it's not really a buckling study per se, but it is a study on buckled spines. And a buckled spine would simply be an abnormal curve, again, an S-curve, a retrolisthesis, etc. This particular paper is a post-surgical paper, and it's called Kyphosis, One Level Above the Cervical Disc Disc disease. Is the kyphosis the cause or the effect of the disc disease? Uh, the lead author's name is Ozer, O-Z-E-R. And this was uh, published in the Journal of Spinal Disorders and Technique in uh, 2007. And so my first question is, Dr. Joe, have you read this one? No, I think I didn't read it yet. Yeah. <laughs> so again, I, nice. I think I got Joe on this one. Fred, what do you think? Sounds like it was a swing and a mess. Yep. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to have to find some uh, articles that you haven't gotten to. I figured you'd be a little distracted at home, but I guess I was wrong. Uh, yeah, you know, the thing is I, I sometimes don't send you these papers anymore because I like to spring them yeah, on you. Yeah, I know. That's exactly what you're doing. So now I'm going to have to tell our, our, our uh, one of our doctors who supplies <laughs> us to leave you off the list. That'd be yeah. Dr. Betts. i got to tell Joe not to forward any papers to you anymore. Right, right. <laughs> so this, this paper... They're looking at kyphosis one level above the disc disease as either the cause or the effect of the disc disease. So you get a degenerative disc, and you look, and that segment immediately above that disc, it's almost always in segmental kyphosis, right, guys? Right. That's what we see on the x-ray. So these guys are calling it uh, COLA, K-O-L-A, kyphosis one level above, COLA, and not... Coca-Cola, but cola as in kyphosis. So they looked at uh, 18 patients who had cola among 147 patients operated on for cervical degenerative disc disease, and they looked at them over a five-year period. So seven of the 18 patients also received surgery for their cola. As, as new surgical treatment of, kyphotic, of the kyphotic level, what they did was they, they looked at the clinical outcomes using standard surgical questionnaires, and they wanted to look at kyphotic corrections for correction of the cola in patients receiving and not receiving surgery for their kyphosis. Okay? So they're looking at subjects with and without surgery and correction for this. So what they found was when kyphotic corrections were compared, statistically significant differences were found between the two groups. Number one, clinical outcome scores, that means patient improvement, showed a trend towards improvement in the patients operated upon for the kyphosis correction. So if you correct the kyphosis, people got better. Number two, COLA was found that kyphosis above the, the, the disc disease Cola was found to be a factor in the development of cervical disc herniation and spondylosis, meaning degeneration. Okay, so they're, they're 
conclusions and their findings are like this. In the cervical region, the upper adjacent level disease may simply be an extension of the cola, meaning the kyphosis caused that. They said larger studies need to confirm or refute our findings. But in their small sample size, they found that the kyphosis preceded the disc degeneration and the spondylosis. And they, they showed that when you correct the, the kyphosis, then the outcomes of the subject seem to be better. So this is an interesting paper, and it correlates to the buckling study that I went through by Matsunaga et al. in Spine 1997, where they showed with an engineering analysis that kyphosis or buckling alignment predicts where the degeneration will occur. And so to me, the surgical paper, it's just, it's a secondary finding. It's proof, it's like putting on top of the, the cake, if you will. The buckling alignment, the engineering analysis it is just the way it is. It's the facts, and the other studies should confirm it, and that's what they confirm. And, you know, if you want to argue that, then you better argue calculus and slopes and bending moments. Okay? So either, either you agree or you disagree, and your belief is based on just that belief, which is not supported by data, or you just concede that it's math and science and biomechanics. So there it is. Well, there you go. Yeah. Now, if we take all that, so as I'm listening to this, you know, it's uh, and this is where different personalities and um, gifts, I guess you could say, are really important in Kyrie United because, the, you know, what you're going over is so crucial for people to know, and yet this is the future of chiropractic when they say there's no research and all this stuff. Hey, man, there's so many people proving you know, posture, biomechanics of the spine and health and all these things that chiropractors don't even have to prove it because the rest of the world's proven it. The engineers are proving it. You know, this is, chiropractic is a law. It's physics. It's engineering. It's not an opinion. It's not only, it's a philosophy that applies to the laws of the universe. So the thing is, when you're looking at the types of buckling that you're going through, number one, when you understand this, you can look at a patient's x-rays and say, you had a compression injury at about this time based on what we see. The next thing is, it's not any secret to know for any chiropractor, no matter what you know about spinal biomechanics, to know if you have a kyphosis, it's pretty easy to predict where the stress points are and where the discs are going to be. So you, you've proven that beyond a shadow of a doubt that a chiropractor can say that. The next thing one of the things that I bring is, what do you say in a report of findings? Well, number one, we have our Regaining Youth and Vitality PowerPoint, which is a new patient PowerPoint that's full of research that shows, number one, degenerative discs lead to a shortened lifespan. They lead to a poor quality of health, less life satisfaction, worse relationships, worse economic conditions. And that's the degenerative spine. So when, so when you're looking at a kyphosis or a cola, like he says, then what are you predicting? Hey, you're not going to live as long. You know, this will wear out. It will wear out faster. And if you have a history of an injury, and that's where um, we went over on one of the podcasts that you weren't with us, Deed, with Evan Katz. You know, when you guys say a curve 30 degrees or more, cervical curve 30 degrees or more, that population tends not to have neck pain. So if they had no history of neck pain, then they have an injury, now you're looking at a kyphosis 
That was the snap-through buckle. That was, you know, a, a force that overcame the resistance of the spine. Now you have injury. Now you can predict where the degenerative discs are. Now you're basically going to live a shortened lifespan according to the research. So when you go through all this, not only at a report, but then you have the research studies at your new patient workshop, it's pretty tough to say no to want to do something about it. And that's the difference between knowing the engineering, predicting a response, knowing what the heck you're talking about, backing it with research, and having the right things in your systems in day one and day two in the new patient workshop, and in that first week that lead to a patient say, okay, what do I have to do? And now they're going to overcome their economic conditions. They're going to pull you know, money out of their resources, liquidate stocks, pull it out of their pensions, or pull it out of wherever they have. And they're going to want to change their life because not only do you know their problem and understand it, but your ability to communicate it is so far above everybody else that it doesn't matter which chiropractor they went to before or medical doctor. You just overcame their objections. Yeah. So there, take that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Excellent. You know, I was going to say, Fred, uh, you know what's great with uh, the new workshop is, you know, we have the x-ray degeneration clip that, that's in there. And, uh, um, of course, they're gonna be, everybody's going to be listening to this podcast after we give the, the uh, demo tomorrow. But what's nice is that doctors can extract that, that one slide, and if they have a computer, they can just pause it and show the, the patient their x-rays right there and, and actually show them, like, if they have a military, stop it right at a military neck. You just click on the, on the uh, video itself and then ask them what do they think is going to happen after you've explained this. And it's quite simple after they've attended the, you know, the, uh, the, the class. On, they're going to know what's going to happen, and they're going to finally get it when they look at their own x-rays. Yeah, because you're listening to that this podcast after our webinar, we will have another one. But you can go to regainingyouthandvitality.com, and you can look at that slide that uh, Joe's talking about. And we have about a third of the PowerPoint slides on the website. You can breeze through those, and uh, you'll see this PowerPoint is will be the most probably influential and dramatic uh, new patient workshop in the profession. So, again, go to regainingyouthvitality.com. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go on. Well, what I was going to say in, in just a summary statement, you know, the thing is for chiropractors, it's important to understand that the, the buckling concept that we just went through because it explains why, on average, traditional chiropractic methods don't change an abnormal cervical curve. Now, occasionally, you'll find that people do get a response, and people with a kyphosis or an S-curve get correction by doing standard chiropractic uh, adjustments, and even in some cases, spinal manipulative therapy gets occasional correction. Well, those, those are the ones that probably did have muscle spasm, but those aren't predictable. It, it's rare that you see that. For example, a paper just came out in the G Journal of Vertebral Subluxation Research, a case report by the, a Pierce doctor on correction of a cervical kyphosis using Pierce technique. And while it's a great case report, he, he showed that after several sessions, they got return of lordosis when the person had a kyphotic neck. It, it's great. Well, that's the person that probably had a muscle spasm causing their curve problem. 
But when you look at the study that was done in the 1990s in, in the chiropractic journal by um, uh, Wallace et al., where they did multiple subjects and they did 24 sessions of Pierce, what they found was they got no net correction in the cervical curve after 24 visits when they included the kyphotic necks. When they excluded kyphotic necks, they actually found a six-degree improvement in their sample population on pre- to post-24 visits later. So what that means is when they included kyphosis, their, their net change went to zero, which means kyphotic necks actually got worse under Pierce Care on average. When they threw them out, they got a six-degree average correction in lordosis. So the point is, once in a while, a blind squirrel finds a nut, and you can change a kyphotic neck by doing, you know, standard chiropractic adjusting. But when it's a buckled spine, you've got to actually unbuckle that spine, and you got to deform it under load, and that's where traction comes in. Traction using weights and using the dental roll and et cetera. That's why... CBP doctors and Pedibon practitioners routinely get corrections that exceed what the other doctors get. So anyway, that that's my quick summary I forgot to include. There you go. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, All right. So, so I, I think that kind of wraps it up for uh, tonight's podcast on uh, subluxation type 3, at least in the cervical spine. We might talk more about other areas. But I want to remind the, the listener out there that uh, the podcasts that we do on Chiropractic United are, are complimentary. They're free for everybody on iTunes, and you can catch us on Facebook, and or you can go to our actual website, www.chiropracticunited.com. But we actually have a service where we offer high-definition streaming video education for, for chiropractors. And that, that service is a paid service. It's an annual subscription uh, for $1,000 a year. And the listeners out there, if you like our free podcasts, you're going to love our high-definition streaming videos. Uh, it's an awesome service where we go through technique. We go through research like this, but we show the PowerPoint presentations. And then we show you the, the treatment on how to correct these deformities and show you how to apply the, the techniques that actually work, that have been tested and tried. And then Dr. Fred gives you more specific uh, coaching and, uh, and vision and purpose for how you implement this thing into your, your practice so you have a successful business model. And we do that through high-definition video, and it's, it's a yearly subscription. It's $1,000 a year. And it amounts to peanuts per video. It's 19 to $20 per video that's on there. And so really it would behoove all the, the listeners out there to join Chiropractic United. Uh, pay for the yearly subscription. You can watch all the videos on there. And you can watch them for as much or as many times as you want. And if you, by chance, if you don't want to join for the year and you just want one or two of the videos, we offer those videos for sale. You can download and save to your hard drive. And that's... Uh, uh, $99 per video, per DVD. So the best bet is uh, is joining for the year. So hopefully you'll check us out on chiropracticunited.com and, and join our high-definition video stream. If you don't do that, then uh, keep listening to us and enjoy uh, the, the information that we provide that's free on the podcast. Yeah, now, I was going to say, Deed, now what else do – when are we um, going to be having some of our seminars? 
seminars, you can go to uh, you can go to the CBP website, idealspine.com, and you can look at our seminar schedule. Uh, I've got one coming up uh, this weekend with Dr. Dan Murphy, but that's too late for everybody. Uh, but we've got some great July seminars coming up. We've got uh, a San Francisco pediatric seminar. We've got a Chicago uh, lumbar rehab seminar in, in July. And then we've got some great conferences with Dr. Fred in Las Vegas, August 5th and 6th. Uh, where Six, seven. Or, sorry, 6th and 7th, where I'm going to be a guest speaker. Uh, it'll be a great elite uh, coaching conference with many, uh, many speakers there, many topics. And then we've got uh, a couple uh, CBP seminars in August, and then we've got a new one in August in Boise coming out. So uh, we've got a lot of seminars coming up uh, for both elite coaching and for CBP. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I just want to add to Kyrie United. You know, the profession is transforming. All of healthcare is transforming. You know, it's um, one of the things that that has made chiropractic so strong is the principle, yet the profession is transforming. And if you don't keep up, you're being left behind. And you need treatment plans and, and insurance is changing. And just saying, hey, they're subluxated and treating them without a plan and adjustment only has already proven that it doesn't change spinal structure. And it's very short term with back pain. And, you know, these are things that everybody outside the profession knows. Yet chiropractic, there's some people that are still stuck on the same model that chiropractic was using 50 or 100 years ago. And the, the philosophy and principles the same, but the application is advancing. And to play in an old model, it's an obsolete model. The principle is an obsolete. The principle is truth. But the application is advancing. And to still practice the way chiropractic was 50 years ago is an obsolete model. You can do it all cash, but even if you do, you have to prove your treatment these days. You have to have something that backs what you do that shows that you're a responsible doctor. And that's what Chiropractic United is. It's, it's transforming the profession to not only bring it up to date, but this is the future of chiropractic. And the application is not traditional. The application is advancing. And that's why having leaders like Deed and Joe is so important to be able to show posture, to have that posture app um, that he's got on your iPhone, to be able to apply the research, to be able to put it into a report of findings and actually put it into practice when you're hands-on on a patient with CBP and to be able to communicate that. So chiropractic isn't just about technique and management. This is literally evolving the chiropractic profession. So in my opinion, if you're not checking out those videos, then I'm going to make a very strong statement. Check your core values and your responsibility because this is the present and future of the profession. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, great. Actually, I have more to say, but we're at the end of the podcast. Yeah. So anyway, check out... Um, Number one, if you like what you're hearing, go to EliteCoaching.com. Check out the PowerPoint that will transform your practice. The people that have been already using it have given testimonials that they've noticed. It's getting it's easier to get people to commit. Go to RegainingYouthAndVitality.com. Uh, just to let you know a secret in advance, we're also creating a PowerPoint for children. Deed is uh, gathering research 
to show why children need to be adjusted and the formation of the curves and when that happens and everything. And so we're, we'll be coming out with another product. So we're continually working with new things to advance your practice and help you become not only more clinically proficient, but to, to strengthen the message that aligns with the philosophy that created this great profession. So stay online, come into these podcasts, go check out Chiropractic United, go to idealspine.com, go to Elite Coaching, Regaining Youth and Vitality, and chirounited.com. And uh, you will be up on the latest of the uh, transformation of the profession. Yeah, you know, and, and really we want to shoot for uh, July, maybe into July, having this pediatrics uh, uh, presentation ready for chiropractors. I'm almost done with it, just putting it together, and then, Dr. Fred, you've got to clean it up and yep. and uh, put your marketing team on it, and hopefully we can have it ready by uh, into July. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds, sounds awesome. good. And also by that pediatric seminar, Deed, is I'm going to have for posture, I'm going to have the pediatric normals that I'm working with you uh, done so that way for the first time when you measure x-rays you'll be able to based on their age based on our textbooks and our or the research you'll be able to compare your patient who might be six years old maybe nine years old compare their values to what normals are for their age because that if you don't know what i'm talking about you need to come to that seminar yeah that's awesome joe that's right the with the posture ray and the pediatric spine, that that's going to be available for chiropractors too. So. And what are the dates of that pediatric in San Francisco? Yeah, it's the uh, it's the. Let me look it up real quick. It is uh, July 16th and 17th at the Hyatt Fisherman's Wharf. There you go. So how fast can you get me those slides? <laughs> That'd be nice yeah. to present that thing at that seminar. Yeah, I, I think we yeah, can no, end the no, podcast there, right, guys? Yeah, uh, yeah, no, yeah. No pressure, yeah, yeah, no, no pressure, no pressure on that when we're recording live. <laughs> right, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Well, I think we can, uh, I can get that to Fred actually pretty quick. Within the next few days, I can have it done. I just got to kind of patch them together a little bit better in an outline that makes sense, and then we'll be good. Yeah, you heard it. You heard it here first, Doctor Fred. Right. Yeah. All right, yeah. guys. So I, I guess that, I guess we're gonna call it a night since uh, we started off doing fifteen minute podcasts and there were a half an hour. Now we're at an hour and fifteen minutes. So I think we're pretty much done for this week. What do you guys think? Yeah, that's good. That's good. 